Okay, the kiddos can go to Children's Church. If you've got your Bibles, you should open them to Matthew chapter 13, okay? Matthew 13. Looking at parables. These are good parables, not terrible parables. These are, these are really good parables. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us and sharing these great realities of the kingdom of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and the stories he told. And we thank you for the clear explanation of them we have because um, that really helps us understand our world and our place in it. So we ask you to open our eyes to these things and let the Spirit speak to our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when you read as much church history as I do, one thing that really jumps out at you is the ongoing struggle uh, in every age, every period of time, every century, however you want to think of it. There's an ongoing struggle between truth and error, between vice and virtue, uh, not only between the church and the world, but within the church. That's always true. And often, we Protestants, when we think of church history, we think of the Reformation, which was very significant. And it was really a battle royal there during those centuries for the truth. But long before that period um, of the 16th century, long before that, and ever since that time, there have been many movements of reformation, if you will. Uh, many efforts, sometimes with huge odds, to uh, turn the church back to the Lord uh, and His Word and to give God His proper place in the hearts of those who profess to be His people. That's why this phrase kind of entered into Christian, the Christian world, um, a Latin phrase, semper reformanda, which means really simply always reforming. The church has to be always reforming. And you have to understand what that means. It doesn't mean coming up with new things, but because there are always challenges to the eternal things that God has revealed in his word, there has to be a continual turning back to scripture. In fact, the whole Old Testament from Moses on after the giving of the law, you've got 1,400 years where the prophet's job, God kept sending these prophets, and their job was to say, Get back to the word, go back to the word, do what the, do what the law says. And it's the same thing with the gospel. Get back to the gospel, go back to the word, do what the gospel says, do what Jesus says. That always has to happen. So always reforming means staying true to the once for all delivered faith that's revealed in the scriptures, which the Bible says is God-breathed. The Bible says all scripture is God-breathed, right? It's right from him. So in every age every age. There are challenges to scripture, sometimes flat out denying it, um, selectively obeying it, layering tradition on top of it so that it gets buried, adding to it. Um, that's always happening. It's always happening. So we must always be reforming, getting back to God's word and the great truth that was delivered through Christ and his apostles. So this conflict within the church for holiness and the truth is as old as the New Testament and, it, and it's going on now. So we're not the only ones under the gun. Uh, it's always been that way. I was reading a book um, discussing the difference between the public morals, public morals of um, 18th century England versus colonial America. And it was pretty interesting to read about that. Um, people from the colonies here would travel to London and be absolutely stunned at the gross immorality that went on in that city. I mean, openly, especially among the upper classes. I mean, they were just, sh they, were, they were shocked. And then the English would come here and just be shocked, absolutely horrified that they could not find a brothel. It was, it was easy, it was hard. You had to really go looking for one. And um, that was very difficult. There was a lot of tension there between the colonies. And scandals and outrages and blasphemies, even among ministers, there's nothing new about that. It's just on TV now. But in colonial time, churches, churches in America were fighting for the right to appoint their own ministers because the people that were being sent over for, from England were pretty scruffy, kind of bottom of the barrel. And you know how it worked in that world in, in English society in those days? And you get this if you read novels from the time or um, books about that time. But, you know, the ministry was a job. It was a job for second sons or third sons. You know what I mean by that? The first son inherited everything. 
the second son or the third son or the fourth son, they had to find a way to make it in the world, right? So some would go into the military, some would um, try to pick up a trade or get into business or speculate as they called it. And other people went in, into the church. You didn't have to be godly to get into the church. You just said, oh, that sounds like a good job. Yeah, you know, I'll get a little parish somewhere and it's the favor of some Lord to be his chapel preacher. And you didn't have to believe anything it, as long as you could kind of toe the line. In the Church of England, everything was in the book anyway. The Church of Common Prayer, the Book of Common Prayer, you just read the prayers. You, uh, you could make up sermons as you went along. They could be really short. In fact, one of the Jane Austen novels, one of the heroes, who's not religious at all, he says, I'd make really good sermons. They'd be really short. And that was just him going into, finding a position, right, you know? And he was one of the heroes of the story. So unsaved, unbelieving ministers and priests, bishops, but not believers, very common. There was a British aristocrat in the um, early 1800s, late 1700s, early 1800s, named Hannah Moore, and she's one of the great Christians of that period, that generation, but she said, quote, very upper class lady, very famous, knew everybody that was important. She was a playwright and all kinds of other things. Which quote, she said, there is but little appearance remaining among the great and powerful of the righteousness which exalteth a nation. It's quoting from Proverbs there, righteousness exalts a nation. She says, I don't see it. And then she said, the Bible had become, quote, the most unfashionable of books. And that was decades after the great revivals under John Wesley and George Whitfield and those guys. So that revival had faded, and that always happens. There's great work of God, it starts to fade, something else has to happen. So Hannah Moore was a really good friend of uh, William Wilberforce, the famous man who fought in Parliament for years to end the slave trade. But he was way more important than that. That was extremely important. But he wrote a book called Real Christianity, that played a very key role in the revival of faith and morals. In fact, when you think of Victorian morals, that really grew out of that movement from his book and Hannah Moore's books too. In fact, the full title of Wilberforce's book, they used to write titles longer than the book. <laughs> a practical view of the prevailing religious system of professed Christians in the high and middle classes of this country contrasted <laughs> with real Christianity. <laughs> So now we just call it Real Christianity, but I actually have an 1830s edition of that book that was printed in America at home. It's one of my prized possessions. And um, written in 1797, that book. And the book was a huge seller, really set the tone for the Victorian age, like I said. And Hannah Moore, she wrote two influential books as well. One was called Practical Piety, which you can still get, and The Pilgrim. And she's very easy to follow, a lot easier to follow than William Wilberforce. He's pretty dense in his prose, but she writes, she's a very entertaining writer. You could tell she was a writer. Wonderful new biography of her came out about two years ago. It's called Fierce Convictions, and uh, quite a lady, an amazing lady. My point, though, in all of this is that the church was a mess. And the church today is a mess. And if you read the New Testament and what Paul's writing to churches, some of them are a mess, right? It's always been a mess. And this morning we're going to see why it's a mess in Matthew chapter 13. So these kingdom parables, there's seven kingdom parables in, the, in this section of the Gospels, all explaining what the kingdom is like, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And remember, when we started Matthew 13, we said the kingdom of God really comes in five stages, so initially, of course, it's prophesied. In the Old Testament, they're telling that it's coming. The kingdom of God is coming. And after that, we have what's called the at-hand phase. And that's when Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because he, he was there. The king actually showed up and was offering the kingdom to Israel. So there's that phase of the kingdom. And then, since Jesus was rejected and crucified, the kingdom is in We'll use the word abeyance. That's the common word that's used. Or the interim. There's an interim between the, coming, the two comings of Christ and that time in between the two comings of Christ, the kingdom is being held off. That's the easiest way to say it, maybe. The interim phase. So a savior had to come. This was God's plan all along. Israel was not going to accept Christ. God knew that. So the plan was for him to come and die for our sins to achieve our salvation. And then that message of salvation has to go into the whole world, and that takes a long time. And so when that's done, he's going to come back. So th and then, that's the fourth stage, the kingdom actually shows up. And Christ comes to rule on the earth, to bring justice and righteousness, which we all long for, but we cannot find. And then after that, the whole thing's going to be given up to the Father, and what's 
theologians call the eternal state. You can read about that at the end of Revelation. So we're in this middle period. That's the now thing. We're in the interim phase where the kingdom's in abeyance. We're waiting for the kingdom. We belong to the kingdom, but we're living in enemy-occupied territory, and we're waiting for the kingdom to come. And while we're here, our job is to invite people to be reconciled to God through Christ so that when he comes, they'll be in his kingdom. It's real simple. That's the idea. Ever since Pentecost, it's the kingdom in abeyance until Christ comes back. It's being held off. So this is the time of the church, a spiritual entity made up of kingdom citizens waiting for the kingdom. Many of the parables in Matthew 13 are about, are about that phase of the kingdom, this period of abeyance when we're waiting for it to come. So the church age, what we're doing right now. So the second kingdom parable, we already looked at the first parable a couple weeks ago. Beginning in verse 24, the second parable explains exactly what's going on when we see failure, immorality, and compromise in churches amongst Christians. And Jesus, well, like, sort of like the weatherman, Jesus said it was going to be this way, right? And uh, it's going to be that way. I wish church history weren't messy, but it is messy. And like I said, Jesus tells us that. Verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. While his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? In verse 29, he said, no. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, Gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into the barn. So that's a pretty simple story. Anybody that lived in an agricultural world at that time would understand what he was talking about. But it's a little mysterious what the point is. Well, how is the kingdom of heaven like that? So this is one of the longer parables, and it has a lot of detail in it. Now, the first parable, which we talked about at the beginning of Matthew 13, the parable of the four soils, Remember that? Described how the kingdom grows. The, the seed is the word of God and it's sown in these different kinds of soil. And only good soil receives it. The other kinds of soil can't handle that. They won't, it won't come to fruition if it lands in them. And, and that represents the human heart, right? So this parable looks at the kingdom as the church takes the message of the kingdom throughout the world. This period literally so far has spanned like 2,000 years, right? And it will last up until the end of the age, whenever that will be. And Jesus doesn't give an amount of time, but the parable makes clear that the kingdom does not come right away. The wheat and the tares are going to be growing along together until the harvest. And Jesus is suggesting that there's some significant passage of time going on there. And of course, here we are 2,000 years later, we're still sowing seed around the world. And here we learn about the nature of the kingdom, how it's going to unfold. And Jesus states quite plainly that what he is revealing would not have been clear from previous revelation. In other words, you can read the Old Testament, you would not have come up with this interim kingdom idea easily. It's, it's being revealed now. Verse 34, all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. And then the next part's the critical part here. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. In other words, this is something nobody knew. And now he's revealing it. That's kind of neat, huh? This is somebody nobody knew for the time immemorial. But you're going to know it. Because here he is. He's explaining it. So the Son of God is coming to the world. One of his things to do is to explain what's going to happen. So that's what he's doing. So the church age of gospel proclamation throughout the world was not prophesied clearly or known in the Old Testament. Nobody expected God's plan to work out that way. So it was unforeseen. It, this interim phase of the kingdom was unforeseen. Everybody was waiting for the kingdom to come. When the Messiah comes, kingdom will be there. 
But that's not how it happened. The Messiah comes, has to solve our sin problem. And then that message of that has to go into the whole world. Then the kingdom comes. That aspect of it was not known before. Now as far as the mess goes, the mess that is the church, you, you, you have to notice the most telling feature in this parable, the most unusual thing, and that's the enemy that comes in. Although the enemy does his work at night, quietly and maliciously, it's the enemy's actions, the enemy of the owner of the field that drives the parable story, right? Because otherwise it would just be, yeah, we planted some crops and they grew, and then we harvested it. But that's not what happens. The enemy comes in and sows bad stuff in the middle of the field. So the lesson is understanding what Christ says. What you want to get out of today is what does Christ say about this enemy and how we regard what he's doing in the world, in the church, okay? So it's not going to be a matter of just cultivation. We don't sow the seed and just cultivate it. We sow the seed and as the plants start to grow, there's opposition. There are enemies and there's an enemy behind the enemies. So what the first parable, Jesus explained it. And thankfully, he did that for this parable too. He doesn't always explain them. But you get the keys from some of the ones he does explain and this one he explains. Verse 36, skip down there. He left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. I'm so glad they asked that question. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers, the reapers are angels. That's really clear. He just one for one. Boom, this is what this is, this is what this is. That makes it super clear. Verse 40, so just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and all who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Many people don't have ears to hear, but if you do, let him, let him hear. You need to hear this. Now the way Jesus explains the parable is to identify who and what the verbal pictures represent. Exactly. And you can take that knowledge then back to the parable and understand the whole thing. So obviously there's going to be a cataclysmic end to evil which the Messiah is going to bring about. So Jesus, the, the son of man, he calls himself, will send forth his angels at the end of the age. So the main point of the parable is about the enemy messing with the kingdom until that happens. So it's about now, it's a, it, the, the parable is about the time in which we live and the time the church has been living all these, all these centuries. So let's look more closely at the elements again. Let's back up to verse 24. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came. There's the dynamic in this story. And sowed tares among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. So the sower is the son of man, um, that's Christ himself, it's the Messiah. Son of man is the word used in Daniel chapter seven when he has this incredible vision of the ancient of days and the son of man was presented before him and a kingdom was given to him, kingdom, power, and dominion which will never end. And that's the Messiah, everybody knows that's the Messiah. His kingdom will not be destroyed, Daniel seven thirteen and 14. The field, Jesus says, is the world. So cosmos is the Greek word there, the, the, the world. The Messiah's kingdom is not limited to Israel. The Messiah's interest is global. It's always been global. Even in the Old Testament it said the, the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles, right? So the word goes everywhere. And that's what's happening today still. But the issue in the parable is not so much the world as it is the church. The tares are sown amongst the wheat the wheat, which comes from the good seed, are believers. Jesus calls them sons of the kingdom. They, 
A son of something means characterized by it. So you're, you belong to the kingdom if you're a son of the kingdom. If you're wheat, okay? They are truly his. But the enemy sows tares among them. Now, let's talk about tares a little bit. Um, tares are a plant. It's called darnel. It's a, it's a weed. It will not grow wheat. You can't eat it. It has no good purpose. It's good for nothing. And when it's really small, it's almost indistinguishable from wheat. In other words, when they start starts to grow, they look the same. They don't look wildly different. It'd be hard to tell. Very hard to tell the difference. When it matures, though, it's very different. And it doesn't bring any kind of a wheat crop there. It's a completely different thing. Rooting out the darnel, once it gets to the stage to distinguish between what's darnel and what's wheat, is risky. It's risky for damaging the wheat because it's densely packed. They're growing alongside it. Remember, they didn't, they didn't plant things in rows. They just scattered seed, and it all grew up together really close. So if you go in there and try to pluck out all the darnel, it's gonna, you potentially are going to pluck out wheat or step on it or break it or something like that. So, so the, the guy says, the owner of the field, the son of man, he says, don't do that. So what are we talking about? We're talking about church life, churches, Christian organizations, big and small, denominations, fellowships, so whatever, all those kinds of things that are, that, are, that are not and never will be until Christ comes back pure. They'll never be pure. Tares are always sown amongst us. There are always tares amongst the wheat, always. So when he speaks of wheat and tares, he's talking about real believers as opposed to those who profess him but don't serve him or have his interests at heart. They really are incapable of that. They don't get it. So they find religion useful and they join in but they don't know the Lord. They're not always easy to distinguish. And here's the kind of the key part about this. A weak, struggling, real Christian may be hard to distinguish between a smooth-talking churchgoer who in his heart doesn't really believe and doesn't really get it at all. You might misinterpret who they are. You might ascribe the wrong thing to each one of them, right? You might think the believer is not a real believer because their faith is so weak and they're struggling so hard. And the well-spoken church person, unbeliever, we might assume that person's a believer because they say things that just the way we like to hear them. And they seem to have their act together. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But keep that in mind. That's sort of the key idea here. So the parable then is immediately helpful for keeping us from making certain kinds of mistakes. There's basically four mistakes I want to cover. First of all, number one, some people are on a quest for a perfect church. Now I know you're all here, so you're not questing for a perfect church. So um, thank you, appreciate that. But some people are perpetually dissatisfied and no church ever measures up. In fact, you want to go back to the 1700s again, Roger Williams, um, who founded the Rhode Island colony, he kept withdrawing from every, you know, he left the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the Puritans and he went to start his own thing, Baptist kind of thing. And they, that's fine. But then he separated from the church he planted and then he kept separate. Pretty soon he was all by himself because nothing was pure. You know, that's a problem. That's a problem. Because you know what? He probably wasn't pure either. <laughs> that's why you shouldn't really be doing that. But no church quite measures up because we are all very imperfect people and not all of us are as zealous for Christ and the gospel as others are. Sometimes shocking levels of sin are revealed in churches. We've been reading about that in the news. Sometimes that happens because saints are weak and sometimes it happens because, and probably more than we expect, because tares are sown amongst the wheat. There are unbelievers in our midst and uh, that just don't know Christ and are not born again and have a very myopic view of the world that is a this-worldly view of the world. So never forget that. Jesus said it's going to be that way. J.C. Ryle, the great bishop of the Church of England, who had a horrible time in his day trying to get the church back on track biblically, he said, quote, the visible church is set before us as a mixed body, talking about Jesus' words here. It's a vast field in which wheat and tares grow side by side. 
We must expect to find believers and unbelievers, converted and unconverted, the children of the kingdom and the children of the wicked one, all mingled together in every congregation of baptized people. The purest preaching of the gospel will not prevent this. There has never been a visible church or a religious assembly of which the members have all been wheat. The devil, the great enemy of souls, has always taken care to sow tares. He's totally right about that. That's why the church has struggled in every age, not only with outside pressure from the world, but from within, from the inside. You'll never find a perfect church. And of course, now obviously a thoughtful Christian wants to go to a church that proclaims the gospel, that prioritizes the word of God above human tradition. And in our age, um, uh, you know, isn't that steeped into entertainment value. You know what I mean? It's kind of a weird part of modern society. I think most Christians in most places in the world at most times throughout history would be utterly shocked that people would choose a church for entertainment value, but they do in our time because this is the age of entertainment. You know, there's the age of exploration, the age of science. We live in the age of entertainment. What can I say? So that affects the church, right? But they had their issues in their time. We have our issues in our time. So, but tears are tears and they always show up. That's why I mentioned uh, Hannah Moore and Wilber, Wilberforce because in many ways, the second half of the 18th century in many ways was a golden age of Christianity. I mean, things were happening that had not happened like that before. It was an amazing time. Global missions really started in that period. Bible societies started in that period. People donating vast fortunes of money to print Bibles in every language they could. People in America were translating the Bible into the language of Native Americans. People in India were translating the Bible into the languages there. I mean, it, the world was going like that. Sunday school began during that period. Not Sunday school like we have at a little hour on Sunday morning. You know what Sunday school started as? It was a school for poor people that worked in factories, little children that worked in factories and had no education and couldn't go to school. Free education was provided on Sundays by Christians. Of course, the gospel and the Bible was a big part of that, but, but um, very dynamic, uh, world-changing kind of actions from people. And Hannah Moore, as rich as she was, she would go to poor villages and do this kind of work and uh, work for the gospel and the betterment of lives. It's, it's really quite a remarkable time. And yet... At that time, there was so much unbelief in churches, so much opposition to gospel preaching. You know, the reason Whitfield and Wesley preached out in the open is because they weren't allowed in churches to preach the gospel, you know. Uh, you're getting a little too carried away there, gentlemen. All of that kind of stuff. So people in European societies with state-sanctioned churches viewed the ministry as just a job, like I said. So you don't... Um, uh, you, you just go into the church. So there was a lot of unbelievers in the ministry. And then once unbelievers are in the ministry, if they're really good at organizing, they become bishops. And who do they appoint to key positions? Unbelieving bishops. Whoever's just efficient at running this or that or they have some kind of relationship with or something like that. And the Church of England had this, you know, it was hammered out during the days of uh, Henry VIII and they had this grand doctrinal statement. I mean, a really great doctrinal statement. The original Church of England, it's still there, but nobody believes it. Even the bishops don't believe it, very few, and the, a lot of ministers don't believe it. They don't care a thing about it. Just as many large denominations in our country have totally moved away from their original doctrinal statements, even though they're still there, they just don't believe them, and they pretend like they're not, they're not there. So in our time, you can openly question or deny the central tenets of the faith and be very highly placed in the clergy, even be a bishop. Churches are supposed to be sowing good seed, but you can't sow good seed if you don't even know what it is. You know, that's the, the idea. Churches are supposed to be sacred places from which the word of God is proclaimed and proclaimed to the world and Christians are discipled to grow into Christ-likeness and learn to love and obey him. But sadly... And it always happens, it's happened for 2,000 years. Whatever's current in the surrounding culture influences what goes on in the church. The thinking, the practices, um, it changes things just like we see it today in so many different ways. In the last 130 years or so, whole denominations in America, started in Europe, came over here, have fallen into unbelief and really unbelievable compromise. I mean, in terms of basic, the basic Christian faith. 
Many of churches have turned away from Christ. They openly mock the, the death of Christ for sin. Um, it's tragic. They mock the gospel. Notice in the parable too, who's the enemy? Who did Jesus say the enemy was? The devil, right? So he's real and he's busy. He's very busy. He labors. He labors craftily to make sin look beautiful and error look good, you know, acceptable. So the Son of God is sowing seed all over the world and right behind him the devil is coming and sowing tares all over the world in the church. If you ever embrace thinking, if you ever, if you ever stop and think like, you know, doctrine doesn't really matter or biblical morals are a matter of opinion or character is good but it's not necessary for somebody preaching. After all, we're all a work in progress, aren't we? Well, if, that, if, if, if any of that thinking is in your head, Satan has gained a beachhead in the church and he's giving you tools and those, those thoughts are the tools. He's, he's getting a beachhead through you in the church if that's how you think. You're a tear. He's handing you seed, Darnell, tares. He's handing you the seed of tares to sow in your church if you think like that. So for Christians, for a Christian, what the way it's supposed to be is everything. Everything, every idea, every common practice of society, everything we're told by the world is good and right has to be examined in the light of Scripture. Amen. That's what a Christian is, thank you, there's, there's a wheat over there. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> I don't know who said that. Because the world is lost, right? And desperately lost, and it's always sinking away from the truth and from God. And God's word is the standard, it's the measure. It's like, you know, when they used to cross the ocean, they found the North Star, and that would be at least tell them the direction they were going. And this is like that for us. It's our, it's our guiding star, and everything's measured by that. But sure enough, what happens is, whatever is trendy in the world, church folks will try to adopt it into the church. I can't think of anything our culture embraces that the Bible condemns, I mean condemns plainly, that some church leader or Christian, even bearing the name evangelical sometimes, will call for the church to accept it. I mean, that happens all the time. And it's happening, of course, today too. After all, we don't want to lose the young people or lose our voice to this generation or be out of touch. Well, look, I don't want to lose them either, but much, much more I don't want them lost to Christ. That's way more important that they not be lost to Christ than that we lose them from attending church or giving money to the church or anything like that. Christ saved me and I am here for him, period. I'm inviting foul rebels to be reconciled to God, to a holy God and a righteous king like I was reconciled to him as a foul rebel. That's all that matters. And telling them the king doesn't care about their rebellion and he's really a nice guy and there's no need for repentance, that doesn't help anybody. That doesn't help anybody. You're literally leaving a rebel with a death sentence hanging over his head when the king shows up. You're leaving them there if you don't proclaim the truth to them. The Savior keeps sowing, but the enemy sows too all the time, tirelessly. So you need to make sure you're not upholding the religion of the tares because that religion is all around us and you can be sure it shows up here. It shows up everywhere. Notice verse 25. When the enemy comes, what are the sons of the kingdom doing? They're sleeping. They're sleeping. Don't be asleep in a spiritual sense. That, that that happens, that Satan wants to sow tares amongst us. Don't be unaware of that. You need to make sure you're not upholding the religion of the tares, right? So number two, here's another big mistake. Not being watchful, this is it. We're sleeping. Not being watchful because you don't understand how active the enemy is 
is a really bad thing. You've got to assume that he's active. The enemy slips in when we're not watchful. He's cunning. He has a diabolic purpose. Why does he do that to the owner of the field? Why, why does he do it? I mean, he hates him. It's an enemy, right? He hates him. That's why he does it. After a while, when the wheat starts to produce grain, verse 26 says, the tares become evident also. So suddenly, you're inundated. And this happens to whole denominations. There are whole denominations where the wheat is the little tiny part, and it's just a sea of tares. That's what's happened over the years. But those churches didn't start that way. They started with wheat, lots of wheat, and little tares amongst them. But now, they're, now they've been terrorized. I just invented a new word. No, throw that one away. I wasn't planned. <laughs> Didn't work. This is very evident in church history, like I said. At, at, you know, back in the early 1900s, German rationalism was the new thing. Um, Anti-miracles and all of that. That was taught in the universities in Germany. A lot of American professors and pastors went to study in Germany because they're the brilliant people and came back here and started teaching that here and so um, it started to grow it was called modernism back then in fact the big battle in the 19 teens and 20s was the fundamentalist modernist controversy the fundamentalists were hanging on to the Bible the modernists were saying oh, don't be so crude and silly and uh, that, was, that was where these denominations started to fall apart and split up and um, all kinds of horrible things happened. But people denied the virgin birth, they denied the miracles of Jesus, they questioned the resurrection, but here's the thing, they, they agreed with the morals of the Bible. So these early tares said, oh, absolutely, we, we believe in the morality of the Bible. And they really did, they believed that. But they cut the gospel out and they made Jesus just kind of a good guy, a good teacher, a reformer, kind of a person to follow. What happens when you do that? Well, you've just undercut, there's no authority, right? So you can say, we still believe these, but over time, when this culture changed, you went through the Roaring Twenties, and then you had two sexual revolutions in the 20th century. One was the Roaring Twenties, and then in the 1960s. I lived through the second one. It was uh, quite interesting. But... Um, the fruit of denying the authority of the Bible and the need for a savior, that changed the culture because human beings are going to follow their worst impulses. How does the Bible put it? They invent evil for themselves. So that's what started happening. So did the ones that said, we believe the morals, but just don't worry about the miracles and all that theology stuff, did they go, oh my goodness, we were wrong. We've got to get back to the Bible and the authority of scripture and to save the morals because they've all gone crazy. Is that what happened in those churches? So here we are in the 21st century and now those churches that back then said, well, you don't need all that theology stuff but keep the morals, now they've changed the morals. In fact, they're trying to outpace themselves, uh, each other, you know, for embracing whatever the latest weird thing is. That's what's going on. So they changed the morals for the same reason they changed the theology, to stay relevant, to be in tune with the culture, and so that's what happened. I grew up in a church like that, so I know exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus, for example, said marriage is between a man and a woman. Well, that has to go. <laughs> what are you, unloving? <laughs> Just two weeks ago, two weeks ago, the Church of England, talking about the Church of England a lot today, they created a new sacred rite. They used using a baptism to bless transitioning from one gender to another. <laughs> so you got baptized as a baby, but would you get into your transitional phase to become a woman if you're a man or whatever? You can go through this baptism. So they actually created a baptism service for that. And then a few very stodgy, old-fashioned bishops over there, a couple of wheat, a couple bits of wheat in that field of tares, they said, quote, Baptism should be about affirming faith rather than gender identity. Well, that's the whole point. The cultural norm is to affirm your identity, right? In whatever expression that takes, even, even if it defies biology. So there's no rules. If I feel something, that's reality. So that's what I meant to be. I, I couldn't have feelings that aren't from God, could I? Well, I gotta, 
don't tell anyone, but I have feelings that aren't from God all the time. All the time. I say no to them as much as I can. I have a lot of feelings that aren't from God. That word identity, though, is really important because, you know, people that have unnatural sexual desires or impulses who do come to Christ as sinners in need of grace and find him as a wonderful Savior and Lord and King, they use that word identity too, except in a different way. They say, my desire is not my identity. As a Christian, Christ is my identity. And that's what people that have had those problems have thought for 2,000 years. And that's how they, their lives were changed by him. 2,000 years people have said, in baptism, I identify with Christ. It's a declaration of a new life and a declaration of an allegiance to him. That doesn't mean feelings all go away, necessarily. My bad feelings haven't all gone away, but I know who I'm loyal to. So, church history is messy. It's very messy. The church was messy in other ways in times past. It was messy in its own way. The present church is messy. There's an enemy sowing tares all the time. And his minions do what they can to subvert the kingdom of God. Bad doctrine, worldliness, corruption, greed, foolish superstitions, immorality, all of those things have always plagued the church from different areas, different directions, and yet there's always wheat, there's always bursts of light going on, godly individuals that God raises up in their generation, individuals, groups, movements, there's the theological reformers like uh, Athanasius, Athanasius against the world, right, Athanasius contra mundum, that was the great saying back there in the 5th century, Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, Calvin, Knox, Bible men, Jerome, Ophelus. You know who Ophelus was? He was a slave that became a bishop and translated the Bible into the languages of the people that were conquering the Roman Empire, the barbarians. He, he didn't go, oh, we're losing our empire. He said, we've got to evangelize those folks. And he translated the Bible into their language way back in the 5th century. Again, Bible men, Wycliffe, Tyndale, translating the Bible into English and printing it. Luther, translating the Bible into German. Missionaries, Columba, Boniface, Patrick of Ireland, the Moravians, David Brainerd, William Carey, Hudson Taylor, Amy Carmichael, Jim Elliott. Lights of faithfulness. Wheat, churchmen, Augustine, John Chrysostom, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, J. Gresham Machen, who most of you haven't heard about, but he wrote the Greek text I had to use in, in college. But he's the guy that wrote the book Christianity and Liberalism back when that fundamentalist modernist controversy was going on. He's a Presbyterian. He's, he wrote this really important book. It's still widely read today, showing that this new modernist thing is a totally different religion than Christianity. That was his point. Very gracious man, very interesting man. You can add to that list of churchmen, Wang Yi, who's sitting in a prison now in China, got arrested just a few weeks ago, wrote that incredible letter, a man who will be remembered. World changers, uh, Wilberforce, Hannah Moore, Granville Sharp, uh, John Newton, all the people that took the gospel and out into the culture and actually shaped the culture for good in the name of Christ. So the names go on and on. Lights in a dark world. Lights. Wheat. Fruitful. There's millions of them. And only a few are remembered by history. Men and women of whom the world is not worthy to quote the book of Hebrews. And yet, in each one of their lives, every name I just mentioned, they were surrounded by terrors and wickedness and compromise. All of them. Unbelief sometimes even violence against them. The wheat sometimes is almost choked out by tares, and yet the church survives. How does it survive? Because Christ said what? I will build my church. So he's in charge, and it's going the way he wanted. And he told us it was going to be this way. There's going to be tares sown right among you. The battle is, is a battle, and don't think it's not. Don't get frustrated by that. The tares are present all around us. The third mistake, the third mistake is trying to rip out all the tares. <laughs> it's, 
It's interesting the slave owners ask, uh, the the slaves of the owner of the field ask, do you want us then to go and gather them up? He said, no, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. So, Jesus says, let them do their thing for now. We'll burn them later when the king comes. That's literally what he's saying. So Jesus knows, and he's giving us a, a, a very subtle bit of wisdom here. He knows that we cannot distinguish always faithfully the difference between wheat and tares. We just can't. I can't. I've been really shocked who turned out to be a tare over the years in this church that I thought was wheat. I was sure was wheat and turned out not to be. I mean, it's surprising. And then there's some people that I just didn't think they were there at all. And then they just flower one day. All the fruit's there. Their lives are totally different. And uh, I can't explain it. But But I might have taken that little weak, struggling person and dismissed them. Or if we had a really overbearing kind of church ministry here, we'd say, you're not worthy of us. Out. Right? And yet, they were waiting to flower. And then the terror who talks so good and seemed to get it all, oh man, what, that person's awesome. Maybe not. Maybe not. Jesus knows we can't distinguish. Now, churches have to strive to be doctrinally pure and be concerned to have a church membership that is made up of true Christians as best we can. And Jesus says, we'll get to that in a couple chapters from here, unrepentant sin in the church has to be corrected and disciplined if necessary. And yet, we have to accept that we can't do that perfectly and we need to fear, we have to have an internal fear of measuring people by a personal standard or an expectation that is just ours, you know? Kind of an arbitrary standard we invent for ourselves. We don't want to pull up the wheat along with the tares. Too many times, true Christians are crushed by an ungracious church ministry or church leaders. And that's happened to a few of you, I know. Or other church members. Just tearing you up. Because you're not where they are. There's a balance here between holding each other accountable, which we need to do, and not ripping up the wheat, which we cannot do. We can't do that. We shouldn't do that. Matthew Henry, the old Puritan, he says, many children of the kingdom of God are so defective and many children of the wicked so plausible that no human skill can exact separation. And he's referring to this text here. He's right. He's right. So we can always know I mean, we can't always know, we cannot always know who's a weak brother and who's an unconverted child of the devil. We can't know that. So while open, unrepentant sin calls for church discipline like Jesus commanded, we can't judge people unconverted. That person is unconverted. Because we don't feel like they're not, they're not zealous enough, you know, or they're not where we are. They're not thinking like us enough. Can't, can't decide that. It might be best, and Jesus says it should be, that we risk a few tears so that we don't damage the wheat. So that's sort of the key idea here. Jesus is the only infallible judge. Verse 30, allow both to grow together until the harvest. In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then in verse 40, he explains that, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and all who commit lawlessness. Stumbling blocks are people that like to make other people sin. That happens in churches too. And will throw them in the furnace of fire. Don't be one of those people. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Verse 43 there is echoed in that line from Amazing Grace. We've, when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun. That's where that comes from. And just as is always true in Jesus' teaching, always true, there's only two ends. There's only two ways to go. You're a good fish or you're a bad fish. You're a sheep or you're a goat. You're a child of the devil or you're a child of God. 
Only two destinations, weeping and gnashing of teeth or shining forth as the sun. Those are the two possible destinations. In the end you are his or you are not his. You are grain or you're a weed. So be wise. And be aware that messiness is just par for the course. It's par for the course in the Christian life and in the church. Don't, here's what you should do. Don't add to the mess yourself. Don't be a messy person. You be as upright and as straight as you can be with regard to the Lord. You serve the king. Serve the king. And don't let negative church experiences pull you off from your primary obligation, which is to serve the king in his church. See, people get beat up by churches sometimes, and sometimes very unjustly, and they give up. But that, why, why are you giving up? You can't do that. You serve the king, right? Aren't, don't you belong to him? It's his church. He died for the church. In fact, the Bible says it was the church he bought with his blood. You say, I don't want to be around them anymore can't do it that way there's tares in there there are tares amongst the wheat you're going to get ripped up sometimes even the wheat might rip you up sometimes <laughs> but don't give up on that so do what you're supposed to do here's four things love your king and serve him keep a faithful heart centered on him not on people keep a faithful heart centered on him love the church he died for that's number three and the very imperfect people in that church. And grow. Grow to fruitfulness. Grow in faith and knowledge. Become a fruitful stock on that vine of, of wheat. You can't go wrong if you're doing what you're supposed to do. You can't go wrong. And just leave the rest up to him, right? That's what he's saying. You do the right thing and you leave the rest up to me. I'll handle it. I'm, gonna, I'm the savior of the world. You're not. You're just an instrument right now. So be an instrument. Be an instrument of what's right. Be wheat. But I'll take care of everything else. And it'll all work out all right. You don't have to fix everything. I'll fix it all at the end. Don't worry. That's what he's telling us. So just trust him. Trust him. Let's pray. Our great Lord, you, your wisdom is much higher than ours. So we leave all the results of our efforts in your hands. We ask only that you keep us faithful and focused on you as the king that we're to serve. Faithful, faithful to you. Faithful to what you have given to us. Faithful to be light in a dark world. We ask this in Christ's precious name, amen.